morning, church. You know, I was thinking about something this week. My generation is the last generation to really have any concept of what it looks like to grow up without the Internet. We, we grew up in an era where it was just starting to shift over. And so there's a few things that other generations coming after me don't necessarily know about. And one of those things I was kind of pondering this week was the idea of advice columns. Does anybody remember those? Like, you'd have like those Dear Amy's, Dear Alice's. So like, if you had a problem in your life, you would write it to this person, and then they would post that problem publicly for everyone to read. And then they would give you their advice in a very public format, in a paper or magazine. And I saw this this week, and I just thought it was really funny. It was, it was entitled, Why Men Don't Write Advice Columns. And so I want to share this one with you. I thought it was very, very funny. From Dear Walter. And it says this. It says, Dear Walter, I hope you can help me here. The other day I set off for work, leaving my husband in the house watching the TV as usual. I hadn't driven more than a mile down the road when the engine conked out and the car shuddered to a halt. I had to walk back home to get my husband's help, but when I got home, I couldn't believe my eyes. He was in our bedroom with the neighbor's daughter. I'm 32, my husband is 34, and the neighbor's daughter is 22. We've been married for 10 years, and when I confronted him, he broke down and admitted that he'd been having an affair for the past six months. I told him to stop or I'd leave him. He was fired from his job six months ago, and he says that he was feeling increasingly depressed and worthless. I love him very much, but ever since I gave him the ultimatum, he's become increasingly distant. He won't go to counseling, and I'm afraid that I can't get through to him anymore. Can you please help me? Sincerely, Sheila. Here's Walter's response. Dear Sheila, a car stalling after being driven a short distance can be caused by a variety of faults with the engine. First start by checking that there's no dirt in the fuel line. If it's clear, check the vacuum pipes and hoses on the intake manifold and also check all grounding wires. If none of these approaches solve the problem, it could be that the fuel pump itself is faulty, causing low delivery pressure to the injectors. I hope this helps. Sincerely, Walter. I love that story because I think it shows a truth that is pretty evident in life that there are moments when you can have factual information, factual responses to things that are completely and totally missing the point. You ever been there before? Where you have the idea, you, you understand the information, but reality is you completely and totally miss the point. And unfortunately, sometimes, I think there are some people that can do that when it comes to Christ, when it comes to the cross of Jesus, that they know information, the things that they know are informationally correct. Jesus came down as a man, died on a cross for our sins. But then the way they live their life, the way they talk about the cross, the way they talk about things shows that they've completely and totally missed the point. I had a friend when I was growing up. I was about 11 years old and my, my friend had unfortunately been exposed to a lot of things in his life that caused him to have some life choices and decisions that were well beyond what an 11-year-old should ever be exposed to. And one night we were talking, and we started talking about Jesus. And he said, you know, I, I know I do a lot of things that I shouldn't do that Jesus wouldn't be happy with, but it's okay, I have a plan, he said. 
He said, my plan is this. See, every night before I go to bed, what I do is I quickly pray and I ask God for forgiveness for my sins. That way, if I die in my sleep, I'm good. Because his idea was, okay, well, if I go out and I sin, I just keep doing the same things over and over again. As long as I've asked Jesus to save me, I'm good. And unfortunately, that's something that we can look at now and go, oh yeah, that's kind of silly, but there's a lot of people who live their lives that way. As if the, the cross of Jesus was simply a moment for us to just kind of have our sins taken away and just making sure that all of our debt's taken away. Let me just check in and make sure. Have I built up any debt? All right, let's just get it checked off again. I heard this quote this week that says, when we see the crucifixion of Jesus as a legal transaction in which Jesus just paid the bill, we run the risk of cheapening the work of restoration at the heart of the cross. The thing is, a lot of us know the story of the gospel, that we were separated from God by our sin, and that God cared about us so much that he sent his son down to die on a cross to restore our relationship with us and take care of our sins and allow us to be in a position where we can spend eternity with him forever. And we talk about this, and every Easter we, we just celebrate the fact that we have a God that loved us so, so much. But when it comes to the cross, something I fear is that we see it simply as just a little checkbox. Okay, good. God took care of my sin. Thanks. I'll move on. But the reality is this. In John 10.10, Jesus says that the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But he says, I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Jesus came to give us a new life to make us new creations in Christ Jesus. And that starts at the cross. And so what we're going to do in these weeks leading up to Easter is take a deeper look at the cross and what it really means for our lives. And we're going to do that by doing this. We're going to look at seven of the greatest words of love that have ever been said. They're the words that Jesus said while he was on the cross. Seven different phrases and moments on the cross that Jesus spoke. And in each one of these, we can see a way that the, that the cross can change everything in our life. And I think it's so incredibly important because if we can't think of seven things that the cross has done in our life, we might have an issue with our understanding of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And so today we want to unpack that. And we're going to start today with the first thing that Jesus said when he got on the cross. In Luke chapter 23, if you want to join me there in your Bibles, Jesus is going to the cross. He's up on it and it says in verse 32 that two other men... Both criminals were also led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the Skull, or Golgotha, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching. And the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others, others, let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine and vinegar. They said, if you're king of the Jews, save yourself. There was written a notice above him, which read, this is the king of the 
Jews. In the midst of all the mocking, the shaming, the terrible things hurled at him, Jesus is on the cross, and his concern is, Father, forgive them. The most important thing, the first thing that the cross brings is forgiveness. If we've been followers of Jesus for a while, we know this, that Jesus paid the debt for our sin, paid the debt for our forgiveness. And that's awesome and amazing and incredible. The problem that I find is that a lot of Christians don't live that way. Like, I know a lot of Christians that go through life and they go, they'd say, oh yeah, Jesus paid for all my sin. He paid for my forgiveness. Oh, how wonderful and amazing is the cross. And then you look at their life and the way they live their life is filled with guilt that's still enchaining them. They still have guilt that they're continuing to carry in their life, which is crazy because guilt is the opposite of forgiveness. Obviously, the forgiveness hasn't done a lot to me if I'm still carrying guilt in my life. It's kind of like if you're talking to someone that goes, yeah, I'm a vegan. I believe meat is murder while they sit there and cut up a T-bone steak. It doesn't make a lot of sense. If I understand I've been forgiven, then why am I allowing guilt to control my life? Why am I carrying around guilt and allowing it to enslave and enchain me? One of two things is, is likely the issue. One is that I have a bad understanding of the cross. There's something that God wants to do in me that I, I'm still not fully accepting. Or I have a bad understanding of who God is. Maybe I value other people's opinion of me or what they think above what God thinks. The Bible's clear that my sins are as far as the east is from the west. I'm a new creation in Christ Jesus. So the question is, why do so many Christians carry guilt around with them even today? If you're someone who's carrying guilt, I, I, wanna, I hope that today will be a freeing moment for you. And I want to start by looking at a couple things. The first thing is this. I want to look at how the world says to deal with guilt. Like how we see people deal with guilt in their average everyday life. There's a few different things people do. The first one is this that I see all the time. It's that people bury it. When they feel some, have something that makes them feel guilty, they just bury it. Stuff it down. Put it in that hole in the back of your mind where you have all the things that you feel guilty about. Plus all those cringy moments from fifth grade where you said something weird to a girl. Like all that stuff. The problem is, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the things that I bury don't stay buried. Like, I have nothing in my life that I've gone, ooh, that makes me feel uncomfortable or makes me feel guilty that I bury in that little hole in the back of my mind. It's like all of a sudden it comes up at some point. At some point it will come back to life. But yet we try and we try, don't we? See, the problem is you can't bury your past, but you can deal with it. But man, we, we'd rather bury it sometimes. We bury it under activity, achievement, addiction, another person. And what I've found in life is that when it comes to, build, to, to guilt, you can't bury it, but I have found this. It can, it can bury you. You can't bury your guilt, but your guilt can bury you. In Psalm 32, it says, When I refuse to confess my sin, my body wasted away. And I groaned all day long, day and night. Your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. 
Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me, and all my guilt is gone. Thing is, everyone has a favorite way that they try to bury their past or their guilt, things that they've done that they feel guilty about. Some people try to minimize it. You know, it's no big deal. It's not like I killed someone, which is a a funny thing because the moment we're trying to minimize something, it means that there's something there to minimize, something that we're feeling a certain way about, which begs the question, if it's such a small thing, then why is it that we're having to minimize it in the first place? Other people rationalize it. You know, a lot of other people have done this. Everyone else was doing it. Rationalizing, is I've heard it said, is simply just telling yourself rational lies. Trying to convince your, your mind of something that your heart is telling you isn't true. Another thing we try to do is we compromise it. You know, if I don't hit the bar, just make the bar lower. If I don't quite get up to snuff, well, then we'll just lower the standards. There, there's a quote that's often said by, or often attributed to Adolf Hitler, that if you tell a lie loud enough and long enough, it'll eventually become the truth. And the same thing for us as humans, we just keep compromising and compromising. Eventually, I've heard it said that if you commit a sin twice, it stops feeling like sin. If you mess up something enough times, eventually it's the point where it's just normal. That's just who I am. I'm just a person who struggles with this. I'm just a, yeah, I just, you know, I got some issues. But just who I am. In Proverbs 28, 13, it says, People who conceal their sins will not prosper, but if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. The second way that I see people try to deal with their past is they try to blame other people. It's the old story from the beginning of Genesis. Man, Adam and Eve fall into sin. And what does Adam immediately do? What's he do? Eve did it. Man! God shows up and goes, hey, why'd you guys do this? The woman you put here, which I love that. Not only does he blame Eve, he kind of blames God. Like, listen, the woman you put here. And then Eve goes, well, the serpent. It's like one of these type of things. Everyone's pointing in a different direction. And we've been like that ever since, aren't we? So often our natural reaction is to blame. Well, sure, I messed up, but they did this. Oh, yeah, I know I, I know I shouldn't have said that, but they said this first. But if I wasn't in this situation, the first, but if you hadn't, but, 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 but. I, I heard a quote this week that two butts don't make it right. It just makes it smelly. <laughs> Same thing in our own life. We can try to rationalize it and blame other people and go, well, but, but. Proverbs 19 says people ruin their own lives by their own foolishness, and then they become angry with the Lord. I like that quote, because it's amazing how often I see people do that, even in my own life. People don't follow God for their whole life, and all of a sudden, bad things happen. They go, why did God do this to me? And it was like, was God invited to show up in your life? I don't remember that. You've been pretty much captain of your own ship, but all of a sudden, it's God's fault. The third thing that I see a lot in our world, and when it comes to handling our past and our guilt is we beat ourselves up. Oh, we beat ourselves up. I'm so stupid. 
I'm such an idiot. Ugh. Gosh, you just, you just suck. Ugh. And we just keep beating ourselves and beating ourselves. The problem with beating yourself up is that you never quite know when you're supposed to stop, do you? I mean, you can just, you can hit yourself all day. You can just keep, oh, keep beating yourself. But when, do you, when are you done? And the problem I've found is that there's plenty of people in the world that are more than happy to help you beat yourself up. There's plenty of people that, oh, here's a bat. Keep going. You're doing great. Psalm 38. He writes, my guilt overwhelms me. It's a burden too heavy to bear. My wounds fester and stink because of my foolish sins. I'm bent over and racked with pain. All day long I walk around filled with grief. My guilt overwhelms me. Fact is, we can get that place in our own life. We feel all this guilt and we wonder, what are we supposed to do with it? What are we supposed to do in these moments when we feel like we just can't go on or take another step? And I want to invite you into what the Bible says and talk about how we handle guilt. But before we do that, I want to make a very, very important point. It's that there is a big, big difference between guilt and conviction. Right? Guilt is not from God. Conviction is. Conviction is a catalyst towards life change. Whereas guilt is not from God, it's a lie of the enemy. And so if we're carrying around these things that we're feeling guilty about and there's no conviction from the Holy Spirit to step forward and do something different, then we've got a problem. That's not from God. And in addition, there's a lot of people I know who are guilty about things that they shouldn't be guilty about in the first place. I know people who still hold guilt from a divorce their parents had that in the back of their mind they wonder, was it my fault? or a family member who passed away, or a friend who took their life. So many people I know feel guilty about things they never should have felt guilty about in the first place. Because it was never their thing to be guilty about. And so I think an important truth to remember is this. We serve a God of truth, and one of the devil's favorite things to do is lie to us. And so for some people, the reason you feel guilty is because the devil keeps lying to you and lying to you and telling you, oh, it was your fault. Oh, yeah, well, you know, maybe it wasn't completely up to you, but man, you, you had your part to play in that. And I just want to remind you of what God's word says. Jesus promises in John 16, the Holy Spirit, and says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on His own, but will tell you what He has heard. He will tell you about the future. And let me tell you about the future. The future is, there's a God who's already paid for everything wrong we've ever done in our life. He's preparing a place for us. And guilt has no place in our life. And I just want to pray for you right now before we continue into the rest of God, what God's word has to say. I just want to pray for you. If you're someone who's struggling right now and you got something that you're, you're carrying with you, I want to just pray right now that God's Holy Spirit would come upon you and expose the lies that are in your life. If there's any lies of the devil that are causing you to be guilty and carry things that were never your burden to carry in the first place, Holy Spirit, would you please give them the truth and, and set them free? But also, God, if there's anything in us today for anyone listening 
that is your conviction. Thank you for that conviction. And God, as we continue to look at what your word says, would you continue to convict us, but also remind us that you've come to give us life and life to the full and you don't want us to stay there. You want us to grow in you and grow out of these things. So God, Holy Spirit, if you're convicting today, thank you for it and thank you for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. So I want to continue on into what God says to do when we feel guilt, when we've truly messed up. There's a few things, and if you've been a follower of Jesus for a while, you've probably heard these, heard these verses. But I just want to, continue, I just want to go back to the basics today. So what do we do when we sin, when we mess up, when we blow it? First thing we do is we admit it. We admit that we've fallen short of the glory of God. We get out of denial, quit standing in the pile, and say, listen, I've messed up. Proverbs 20 says this, The Lord's light penetrates the human spirit, exposing every hidden motive. Which is why I think guilt is so devastating. Because you can run from it, but you can't hide from it. The reality is, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We're guilty until God declares us as not so. In 1 John 1, it says this, If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see, to, to stop defeating myself, I have to stop deceiving myself. That's one of the first problems that we have. To, to, to actually stop defeating myself, we have to stop deceiving ourselves. That's one of the reasons that one of the first things that you can do, that you need to do in your life, is admit you have a problem. When we look at any 12-step program out there, first thing they say, you admit it. You say, oh, I got a problem, I got an issue. That's for anything in our life. A lot, a lot of Christians are trying to go through the, the recovery process of God's word, but they're skipping step one. They don't want to admit, okay, yeah, I got an issue. I got a problem. Lamentations 3.40, it says to examine our ways and test them and return to the Lord. You know, in finances, if you're looking at your net worth, how you get your net worth is how? Take your assets minus your what? Your liabilities, your debts, things that you owe. Imagine for a moment that someone came to you and said, listen, I want you to take every single thing that you owe and write it down, give it to me, and I'm going to pay it all. How thorough would you be in going through every nook and cranny to make sure you weren't missing anything? Are you with me? You wouldn't want to be like, oh, there's this thing over here, this thousand dollars I forgot about. You'd be like, you'd be double checking and triple checking. And in the same way, Jesus says, listen, I'm going to pay everything. I'm going to pay everything for you. Every debt, every moment you've blown it. What we have to do is have good accounting. The Holy Spirit convicts us. We have to go, okay, that's something I messed up on and bring it to him. And he pays it all. Wipes it out with his blood. And so in the same way, we have to go and, and look at the things that we've messed up. And sometimes it's even important for us to write them down. 
If there's something you've been bothered with for a while, if you've been bothered with something, whether it's actually sin or something you should never have been carrying in the first place, I want to encourage you, write it down this week. Write it down and put it before God and say, okay, God, if you're convicting me, great. Show me how to be better. I, I need forgiveness, please. And if it's something you never should have been carrying, ask God to give you a peace and a comfort that surpasses all understanding because I pray that none of you are carrying around guilt anymore in your life and that you'll actually take it to God and let him deal with it. First thing we do is we admit our sin. The second thing we do is we accept responsibility. Right? We're not going to blame anyone. Even if it's 99% their fault, we accept our 1%. We're not going to play the butt game. But they did this, but they did that. We say, listen, I messed up. I hurt someone. Fact is, a lot of times we, we like to blame other people and say, well, they made me do this. They made me feel this way. I like that old adage when someone spits on you, they don't make you angry, they just make you wet. I always have a choice in how I respond. It's easier to blame other people and say, yeah, well, they said this. And they used that tone of voice I don't like. And they made this comment. The reality is, it's me. It's my choice on whether or not I'm going to get mad and how I'm going to react. I'll tell you what, when we accept responsibility, one of the best ways to do this is to talk to other people. It's to tell other people what you've been feeling, what you've been carrying in your life. The Bible says in James 5.16, Therefore confess your sins one to another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. If you want to be forgiven for what you've done wrong, the Bible says, come to Jesus. But if you want to be healed, I find that so inter interesting. It says, come one to another. Why? Because it's why God gave us a church for community. And there's, there's healing in community where we can come to one another and go, man, I've got this going on in my life. I've got this area that I've messed up. I've got this thing I need to let go of. It's amazing what happens. I've heard it said that the revealing of your feelings is the beginning of healing. When you reveal your feelings to other people and have people walk alongside you who are also praying for you and pointing you to Jesus, healing starts to happen. And finally, we ask for forgiveness. We admit what we've done, we accept responsibility, and we ask for forgiveness. 1 John 1, 9, we already read it, but if we confess our sins to him, he's faithful and just to forgive us our past sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Now listen, there, there's a, a right way and a wrong way to do this. When we come to God and ask for forgiveness, we ask. We don't beg and go, oh, please, God, please. We don't bribe. Forgiveness from God is never a moment of, well, God, I'll, I'll tithe 20% instead. I'll give a little more if you'll just forgive me. We don't bargain and go, God, if you'll forgive me, if you'll heal me of this, I'll do this. That's not how it works. We come to him humbly and we say, God, you are God alone. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Please forgive me and make me new. See, the thing is, the Bible says in Romans 3.23, and we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all messed up. We've all done things. But the issue I found is that the way Satan likes to work, the way he likes to lie, is he likes to minimize and then maximize. He likes to minimize your sin in the moment, 
Starting back from the beginning. Oh, it's just a piece of fruit. You won't surely die. Oh, it's just that one website on the internet. It's just one time. It's just those words. It's just a little bit of gossip. Just a little bit of unforgiveness. But then he maximizes it. Oh, can't believe you did that. Oh, and you're a follower of Jesus. What if the other people in the church found out? Man, you better not let anybody see it. You better hide it. You better bury it. You better not tell anyone. You better not tell your life group because they'll just think you're crazy. How could you possibly do that? Man, your mom and dad are Christians. Everyone in your life has been Christians. And you come along and mess it all up. How dare you? It's all lies. He loves to do that, to maximize it and make it bigger and bigger and bigger. And we forget that we were never holding God up. He holds us up in his victorious right hand that when we come before God and confess our sins, he is just and righteous to forgive us and our sins are as far as the east is from the west. But he doesn't want us to remember that. He wants us to keep living in bondage to guilt and shame. Psalms 32, it says this, Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sins, my body wasted away, and I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide from my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord, and you forgave me, and all my guilt was gone. I see a lot of people walking around with things in their life looking like this. God is... is on his throne waiting for us to bring us those things in his life so he can forgive us, so he can heal us, he can redeem us. But so many people I know are walking through life holding on to something. Whether it's guilt, maybe it's guilt they never should have had in the first place. Maybe it's something that they never should have even felt guilty about in the first place and they just need to give it to God so he can reassure them that they, they're loved by him. Maybe for others, it's a sin they've been holding on to for so long and they can't get that forgiveness from God because they've never confessed it and given it to him in the first place. There's so much that they would just have in their life. There's so many things that God could do if they would just open their hand and give it to him. But they still just hang on. 2017, there was a guy in Boston. Went to a yard sale. Saw a drawing that he liked. It was a drawing of what he thought was uh, Mary holding a baby Jesus. It was very cool. But then he noticed a name at the bottom. He, said, he thought it looked like the name Albrecht Dira, which is a famous Renaissance painter from Germany. And so one day, he decided to get it appraised. He paid $30 for this painting at a yard sale. By the way, if you're a yard saleaholic, don't listen to this. This is not what happens all the time. Don't use this as a reason to go buy more paintings at yard sales, okay? But listen, 
He paid $30 for this painting, only to have it appraised and find out that it was actually legit from around the 1500s, and it was worth about $10 million. It's crazy. Makes you want to go buy a painting at a yard sale. But what I love about that is that there was this thing that he saw, just happened to also be a picture of baby Jesus, which I love, because in the same way, there's a lot of people that would value the cross of Christ, the forgiveness that God has given them at about that same price, about $30, when the reality is that it's life-changing and priceless. And there was this thing that people just kept walking past. The owners of it didn't think much of it. Ah, just throw it out there for 30 bucks, no big deal. In the same way in our life, we talk about this forgiveness that God has given us, and we believe intellectually that, yes, God has forgiven me. The problem is we haven't let that forgiveness sink down into our hearts and actually change our lives. And so we talk about this thing, and the reality is so many of us go, yes, I'm forgiven by God, and then we go into the rest of our life, and we're in bondage to shame. We're in bondage to guilt. We're carrying these things we never should have carried in the first place. And all the time, this priceless thing is sitting in the garage. This priceless gift of forgiveness that Jesus offered while he's nailed to a cross. Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do. As Jesus not only became the sacrifice for your sin, he became the bridge for you to have a relationship with God so that his Holy Spirit is working in you and transforming you and helping to free you from the things that you're in bondage to. And so today as we close, I want to invite you as we bow our heads just to take stock of your heart. And if there's anything that you're carrying with you, any guilt or shame, I just want to invite you to give it to him today. And as we prayed earlier, we pray that the Holy Spirit, the spirit of truth would reveal to us those things that are lies in our life. And if you're carrying lies in your life today, I pray that today is the day that you say enough is enough and you give it to God and let his power take over. And God, we also pray that for any of us who are being convicted in this place today, that there's something in our life that isn't right, God, help us to admit it, to own it, and confess it to you and be healed. God, thank you for what you're doing in us right now. And so, God, we just come before you to confess and praise you, praise you for who you are and what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. And Father, I also want to pray for another group of people in this room. I want to just pray for those who maybe have never started a relationship with you. Have never truly given you everything. And as we talk about this cross of Jesus, God, I, I just, if you're working on anyone's heart today, I just thank you for doing that. Thank you for the way you're going forth. And so God, for anyone in this place today that wants to take that step forward into a relationship with you, to accept that forgiveness that you offer and that life change that you offer, maybe for the first time today, I pray that, you would encourage them in their heart and remind them of how loved they are by you. And God, I pray they join me as we say, Father, we admit that we're sinners. We can't do this without you. We thank you for the gift of your son dying on the cross for us. And God, we 
accept that gift right now and pray that you would be Lord of our life, that you would take over everything in our life, and that we'd be your children, your followers. God, work in us today to not only be forgiven of our sins, but be transformed. And God, for anyone that starts that relationship today, or maybe just starts it again, God, I thank you for what you're doing in them right now and what you're going to do. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.